0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics, and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. At 10 billion matches, Tinder has made more connections than there are people. But neuroscientists tell us that too much choice can, have, um, can increase our, our expectations and it can reduce our desire. So is choice a bad thing? And have de- dating apps democratized intimacy or are they warping our relationships beyond repair. Now our speakers today are Dr Christopher Hamilton, he's a senior lecturer in the philosophy of religion at King's College London. His Tinder profile lists his interests as philosophy, literature, film, religion and the self in relation to existing structures. Swipe right guys. (laughs) Dr Steve Carter was part of the original team behind eHarmony, he is the chief scientist there where he leads a crack team of data analysts and engineers and he's responsible for the power that is uh, the force and the formulas that it is e harmony uh, his e harmony profile says that he likes music and has natural algorithm Uh, Dr. Anders Sandberg is a researcher, a science debater, futurist and transhumanist. He's an Oxford neuroscientist and fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute. His research centers on societal and ethical issues surrounding human enhancement. And his Tinder profile says, a bit brainy, but very good at role play. Not that kind of role play. You can ask him about it later. Okay. So, as ever, four minutes for each of our speakers. I'll ask them some questions, and I'll get them to row terribly <coughs> with each other, and then we'll open up to you as soon as we can. So, our opening thesis is, has technology warped our relationships? And Christopher's going to kick things off.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Thanks. Um, so, has technology warped our relationships? Well, I mean, during this um, uh, discussions that we've had this weekend, some, a few people have said that they found love on the internet. So clearly for those people there isn't a question of uh, relationships being warped. On the contrary, it's been a resource uh, for them to find love and and contentment. So if one is to generalize, obviously that's a uh, a thing to bear in mind. One aspect of this is of course the persistent confusion that all human beings have between love and sex, uh, love and sexual desire. And For most human beings, it's extremely hard to keep those things always together in the sense that it's perfectly possible, of course, to feel sexual desire for somebody one doesn't even particularly like. There's a certain kind of difficulty that human beings face in bringing these notions uh, together, and I think that some of these um, apps, for example, simply increase the complexity and don't help at all in uh, getting uh, clear. The other thing I think that it's important to bear in mind is just the nature of technology itself. Um, in my view, human beings are extremely um, fragile creatures, highly influencible by the outside environment, highly addictive creatures. And what is very strange about um, dating apps, but not only these, but the whole role that technology plays in our life now, is that we all of us carry around with us in our smartphone, in our iPhone and so on, a phenomenally powerful tool. And in our lives generally, we are... We're, we're divided. On the one hand, we think of ourselves as kind of autonomous creatures in control of our life, but on the other, we know perf- perfectly well that in some ways this is an illusion, which is why, for example, the government wants to put a sugar tax you know, on, on uh, sugary drinks and so on, because if we were in control of our lives in the way we suppose we are, then we wouldn't need the tax. we just say, I won't drink the sugary drink. Um, And similarly with smoking or alcohol, you name your your favourite example. In fact, what we know is that human beings are very addictive and very easily influenced, as I said, by these kinds of things. Now, what's odd is that we don't have that view about technology. We have it about a few aspects of what technology delivers, and in the context of relationships or sex, the main example of that is pornography, which we think of as being something that should be restricted in in terms of particular content or in terms of the ages of those who can access it but we live in a, this strange world where we think that the capacity simply to have this phenomenally powerful technology in our hands is as it were neutral from a from a moral and psychological point of view and yet it isn't it's something which to which we can become addicted to which we using which we can expose ourselves to things which are disturbing, troubling, themselves very addictive and so on. And yet, of course, we, we would all be hostile to the thought that there should be impositions placed, you know, on, or restrictions placed on the use of uh, of these particular forms of technology. And it seems to me odd. We do, you know, after all, the, 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 what uh, a smartphone can deliver is in many ways more powerful and more addictive than alcohol, and yet we have restrictions, very strong restrictions on the, on the use of alcohol, or again ju- uh, drugs, uh, recreational drugs and so on. And so it seems to me that we live with a kind of illusion, an illusion of human beings being able to use this technology, control it, um, and, and that choice is all about, is what it's all about. But actually, the reality is that we're much more likely to be caught up in it, it's victims than, uh, in its, than, than controlling it.
0: Victims rather than controlling it, Steve. Is love warping, is technology warping our relationship to love?
2: Well, I want to break the rules of debate a little bit, I guess, by saying I agree with 99.9% of what Chris says. Um, I think the overarching uh, theme or a overarching theme of technology in our existence as a civilization has been that it can be helpful or it can be harmful. And the internet is no different in that respect. Um, You know, technology internet computer mediated communication internet dating specifically there are very positive things about it there are there are things that it allows us to do uh, in terms of you know distributed workforce computer mediated communication for example um, the ability to have people that are working at great distances from each other uh, the degree to which you can keep communication recorded and work with teams and have repositories of information that can be actionable and used to to uh, keep track of what you're doing, all these very powerful things. And there's a lot of negatives about computer-mediated communication. The depersonalization, people's socialization tends to break down, miscommunication and confusion tends to be amplified. There's problems with it. And it's the same thing with with. with the internet and and internet dating, right? There are positives about internet dating in that it allows people who otherwise wouldn't meet to find each other, it allows people who otherwise wouldn't have a means that they're comfortable with to go out and connect with people, it allows a way for people to find out more about someone uh, perhaps than than they would before they met them, and those can all be positives. But there are also negatives. Um, I mean, like I, I may have been heard mentioning earlier, loneliness is rampant in our society and there's a growing belief that computer mediated communication the internet finding your news and your contacts through facebook and twitter um, is making that worse not better and to the extent that that is part of what we're talking about here i don't think online dating really fits into that that aspect of social media um, and so it would be more on the positive side, but the internet qua communication and getting your information through the internet, I think can be held responsible for making a, one aspect of human existence perhaps a little bit harder, which is having real human communication, real human connection with others face-to-face. And I'm sure Anders will talk about some of the, the neuropsychological impacts that communicating with someone face-to-face has as opposed to talking to someone online. So, so I would say, on the whole... Technology has made our lives better and that the internet is a positive influence and gives us a tool, um, much like the Gutenberg press gave us a tool for disseminating thought in a way that was very, very powerful. At the same time I don't think everyone here would say every book ever published had been a great book.
0: That's quite a surprising take from the the Wizard of Oz behind e-Harmony, right? But maybe I'll. Pr- pr- I, w- I would you hope that, not, because uh, I think
2: it's an intelligent take. Right. So I would hope that that's. But what i I'm you Just because
0: we're slightly in danger of violently agreeing with each other. Because I, I just want you to make a case to us for why e-Harmony works and why it's important to uh, our idea of modern relationships.
2: Well, that's a quite different question. Why this particular technology has a benefit to people. Um, would be because what we've set out to do with eHarmony is to take a problem that people are rather demonstrably not good at solving, which is the long-term prediction of who they're compatible with, and by taking data that we've collected you know, using best practices from a social, psychological, you know, scientific standpoint, we've created models that provide a framework for solving that problem, so that when people come online and are solving the short-term problem, which is do I find someone attractive, do I have something to talk about with this person, can I get them to come out and meet me, that those interactions lead to relationships that have a higher probability of working out over the long term. And that's a straight case of taking a science, which is demonstrably you know, hypothesis-tested and, and proven to the extent that you can prove a, a hypothesis in science, and turning it into engineering. So.
0: Okay, good, a defense there. Anders, has a technology warped our relationship to love?
3: I think it has, and it has been doing that for a very, very long time. And the warping is not necessarily a bad one. I don't think there is a natural love and then technology comes in and makes it worse. Because in that case, it's probably been made worse ever since somebody got a piece of stone and realized, hey, I can uh, turn this into a tool. Because already once you get the tool use, you get changes in how uh, societies are run. Suddenly in the tribe, some uh, uh, cavemen are better at uh, making uh, 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 stone axes than others. Okay, suddenly you have a kind of social distinction, and that probably affected the love life in the tribe back then. So one interesting thing is, as our societies are grown, the, the question of who we might uh, interact with to, to figure out uh, to be a potential partner has also changed. And that is partly because of technology. If you're living in a small rural society, you only meet a handful of people uh, throughout your life. So marrying somebody in the village or somebody from another village is a big undertaking it's getting framed in a lot of social ways because of economics and practicalities of the situation. As technology advanced, our societies got larger, but that, of course, required new innovations in dating. So that's why we have debutante balls. So you have a kind of presentation, or at least some group of people to other group to start to negotiate about who could marry whom. And gradually, as our society got larger, we got the scaling problem that, okay, there's a lot more people than we have ever time to meet. So that's where we get various innovations in dating techniques. Even the idea of dating itself is, in a sense, an industrial era or rather much later, in the 20th century era, innovation on how to solve it. And then people have been trying to solve that further by speed dating, etc., now, what is happening now, thanks to electronic communication and database, is that we can have a much larger group of potential mates and screen through them somehow. Now, that seems to have a lot of interesting effects, uh, partially because now we get to compare everybody in the group and try to see who is the best by our standard. But the interesting part here in statistics is if you have normally distributed random things and you select, you have a few of them and select the best one, if you have about five you get typically one standard deviation above the mean. In order to get two standard deviations, you need about 30 samples. And in order to get up three, you need 300. So even if you're sitting there swiping left and right a lot, there is a lot of swiping before you get Mr. or Mrs. right there. it's going to be a lot of hard effort, even if you had the best tools and just were sampling randomly. And this is, of course, just looking at people actually no human interaction. The human interaction is going to be the bottleneck because that takes time to actually figure out if you're compatible with somebody. requires different tools, and maybe we're developing them, but the, the it's going to take a time before we actually know whether there are any good tools what the consequences are. So I do think this is going to warp a bit our understanding of both love and dating, and whether there is a Mr. or Mrs. Right. Back in the Middle Ages, it was mostly a matter of uh, economics. Okay, let's keep the lands of the family together. That's why you need to marry her. But now, of course, you might uh, say that, oh, it's all about romantic love. But our idea of what romantic love is also being changed by our technologies. We have a sharing of stories online. Uh, We shouldn't forget that the storytelling we do online in a digital world, whether in social media or slash fan fiction, are affecting our view of what love is tremendously. So I think in this sense, yeah, technology is doing all sorts of weird things to love. But we are, of course, doing all sorts of weird things to technology because we want to optimize love. By our own lights. So.
0: I think we've had three quite um, measured responses. None of you are wildly endorsing um, old fashioned um, romantic meetups or um, uh, exhorting you all to get on your apps immediately. On the one hand, we've got from Christopher an idea that relationships are already complex and technology seems to you to be exacerbating the, compl- the complexities that are there. It's a minefield already. From Steve, we've got an idea that e-harmony works because of the science behind it. And so we still have to be careful about the technological or the online versions of um, meeting that uh, uh, we're engaging in. There's a kind of cautionary note there, even though we think e-harmony works. And from Anders, we have the more anthropological take, in which in where you seem to be suggesting that... Apps are just tools, but we've always had tools, uh, and the same problems and anxieties apply. I want us to move on to uh, the first theme of the uh, panel, which is whether this idea of love is about a question of matching up data. And I want to start with Steve, because it seems to me, you're surprisingly, you're saying it's not simply a matter of just matching up the right data, there are other things at stake, but how much of... The, the question of finding love bound up with the matching up of data? How, how much of it is about data?
1: Well,
2: I think, I think the question that, that you want to ask me, the question I want you to ask is how <laughs> much can, can you leverage data yes. to help people yes. fall in love? And from, from our perspective, again, remember eHarmony was a, a, a product founded by uh, a psychologist who'd spent 25 years working with married couples um, trained with Carl Rogers, that some of you may recognize as the father of humanistic psychology, um, and kind of the promulgator of the concept of unconditional love. Someone was mentioning unconditional love. So he had spent 25 years working with people who were in marriages that were unsuccessful enough that they'd sought therapists, the therapeutic uh, interventions. They'd sought help. And after that, that lifetime doing that, he'd come to the conclusion that most of these problems were caused by the people marrying someone that they weren't compatible with to begin with, that he could help them with communication strategies and with trying to reframe things and taking a therapeutic role in the relationship, but that in reality, if he could have kept them from getting married to each other in many cases, he would have been much more successful at at, uh, finding a happy marriage for them. So the, the question is, can you use data to actually do that. So what eHarmony started off as was a, a research act involving thousands, about 3,500 married couples, where they were asked 500 questions, um, and they were actually asked them twice, once about themselves, and then once as they thought their spouse would fill them out, which was data that I immediately threw away. Um, and, and the question was, can you use that data that people are reporting about themselves and what's important to them and how they feel to create psychometric profiles of them and then see that those psychometric profiles and the way they interact with each other predict which of those couples are in happy, satisfied relationships. And, the, and I'm not trying to define love here. Right. Just saying happy, satisfied relationships. In this case, you're using something called the dyadic adjustment scale and which aren't. And it turns out that you can statistically do that quite successfully. So then eHarmony was t- built around the idea of taking that that statistical modeling and turning it into a product that then would then normatively or, or predictively say, here are people that you should talk to. Now go do what you're going to do. If you're going to fall in love with them, fantastic. You know, that would be lovely. But it's kind of an anti-matchmaking site, yeah. right? Because much more important, in the context of what you're going to do, then the people you're being introduced to are all the people we don't introduce to. I love to. this
0: idea that uh, it's as effective a strategy to use the data to keep people apart as it is to put people together. But what is the best data predictor of a relationship that's going to work?
2: Oh, well, it's too... It's, I mean, the best single psychometric measurement that's ever been discovered for predicting the quality of relationships is neuroticism. I love the word, right? So, which is basically uh, emotional uh, volatility. And this has been since, since Burgess in 1938, published one of the first studies looking at psychometric predictors of, of relationship success. This has been understood, I mean, uh, Isaac, an Englishman yeah. who, who who did a lot of work on psychometric assessment trying to predict who would be a criminal or who would be a a return, you know, recidivism, looked at neuroticism versus psychoticism, and this is a very, very, historically, it's been around for a long time, it's in the big five, the ocean model of personality. But one thing to keep in mind is, and if 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 you look at the state of the art in predicting relationship success, Um, because there are academic psychologists looking at this as well, the actor-partner interdependence model, as it's called, uh, the structural kind of uh, model of covariance between psychometrics and relationship satisfaction that's used, there's two parts of it. And the first and strongest part is always the, 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 the relationship between yourself and your own happiness. So, when you talk about neuroticism, you, to a large degree you 're talking about the degree to which your own qualities are going to predict your happiness in a relationship, excuse me in a relationship.
0: Can I get Chris in here because is this data predictor of neuroticism a version of the vulnerability that you were talking about in your pitch, or do you object to this model in? Well
1: I, I mean I may, be, I, I, I may not be the only person here who feels that something important is being missed by talking about you know data predictability and so on and and matching in this way it's very very hard to say what it is but I guess I would start by trying to think about my sense of the irreducible mystery of human beings and indeed of of, of whom one finds attractive I mean I think that I think that at one level it's much easier as it were and and picking up on something that Steve was saying there it's, it's probably much easier to say here's a bunch of people that I wouldn't get on with than it is to say, here's a bunch of people I would get on with. Because it seems to me that uh, one of the features about human life is that one can be suddenly excited or interested in a person in a totally unexpected way. Now, this is partly because if one supposes that what's at issue is, as it were, an investigation of my personality, and then matching them up with a, the a personality, some other, pers- other the personalities of other people, then this presupposes, of course, firstly that I have a reasonably clear idea of what my personality is, um, and I think most of us feel that we, could, you know, we've got a reasonable idea, but we're probably often surprised by ourselves. The other is that <coughs> the other is that it presupposes, <coughs> excuse me, that somehow or other one's personality is something reasonably fixed. And and in fact, this isn't the case, or in some ways it's the case, but in some ways it isn't, in the sense that um, one is always in development. And it could well be that one meets somebody utterly unpredicted by any matching up of data, and that that person draws... You know, we have expressions in ordinary language like, you know, this person draws out the best side of me. And that might be completely... You know, I may think I'm a cantankerous, grumpy, middle-aged man, and then I meet this person, actually, I find I'm full of energy and happy and but i would never have predicted that because i'd written i would have written down i'm a cantankerous grumpy <laughs> middle-aged person you know so who knows and I, I i suppose what you know it may be that people in the audience share this feeling with me maybe they don't but that something is being missed and that the idea of a kind of it's, it, it feels like it could be too re- uh, 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 reductionist yeah it, to to a to a kind of level which m- Misses something really important.
0: Are we missing the brain, Anders? We've got hearts and hard drives, but what does what do dating technologies do to brains?
3: Well, part of it might be, of course. I notice some of my friends who kind of be swiping left and right and without thinking about. Essentially, the smartphone becomes a part of the mind. Uh, I noticed that I subconsciously use Wikipedia, which was also a weird experience to <laughs> actually notice that, oh, I'm, a part of my mind is doing very elaborate things without the rest of me even noticing it. So I think to some extent, yes, this can become part of a mindset. But I also think it's interesting to think about what is happening in machine learning right now. So it's very common to hear that, oh, this and that algorithm from Google or somebody else outperforms doctors at diagnosing people in some domain. And it's typically true when you report just that fact. It's just that it's for a particular thing like a heart condition or a particular form of cancer. And there, once you do a statistical model, you can typically do much better than the doctors at actually finding those signatures that are relevant. Now, if you have some unknown condition and go to the doctor, that algorithm is not going to be very good because it only knows about cancer or heart conditions. And if you haven't got that, they are totally useless. But the interesting part here is, of course, that once you have isolated something in the data that is useful, then it might be a very simple decision rule But uh, the power of data and uh, statistics is better than our human reasoning. The human reasoning really excels in areas where we don't have much data, where it is about unique cases, about weird things. So it might be, for example, that a lot of cantankerous middle-aged men do find uh, love (laughs) and uh, and change their personality with the right person. But I would assume that if eHarmony got good data about the eventual outcomes, they would just have a statistical model suggesting that cantankerous middle-aged men meet in this kind of personality, that tends to do well. Without the algorithm actually having any clue what's going on in the relationship, it's just a mechanical thing. The really tricky part that you're angling for is, of course, it's that very unique match. Mm. And sometimes that requires actually talking to people, discovering things about them, starting to engage in a dialogue. That is much harder to get. And that is where it's probably harder to get enough data to actually say something useful. We have the same problem in machine learning and AI that many of the big data applications are really good and useful when you have enormous data but most of the important things, uh, the important decisions, you don't have any data at all.
1: We have- can I, can, I come, can I come in on that? Because I think part of what I'm g- getting at, and, and I think Anders, you touched on it there, but it's, it's the way in which w- what is appealing about another person, and it might be you know, from, from an erotic or romantic point of view, or might just be in terms of friendship, is something that I would call the person's style you know, as it were, that three or 100 people could do exactly the same thing, but there's a particular manner, or a particular way in which the, a, a given person does this. And, it's, and that is that's deeply unpredictable, the why, why one suddenly... And it's a bit like the, the... You know, understanding a human being is a bit like understanding a, a, um, a piece of music or a work of art, in the sense that you have to have a certain kind of feel for it, you have to have a certain kind of nose, as it were, f- mm. for it. And and that's often a question of kind of responding to a particular style. I mean, if you take the aesthetic case, for example, one of the one of the puzzling things about works of art. say if you take paintings is that this patch of blue next to that patch of red works absolutely fantastically here in this painting. A, we don't really know why but we know it doesn't work in the same way in any other painting and human beings are like that in the sense that some particular mannerism in in some particular person can be all the things that then funnels and channels the interest and the excitement and so on but that one can't predict that one can't know that because there seems something deeply uh, kind of elusive
3: about it but I wonder how much that is it could be that this is practically 90% or 99% of what it means to fall in love or it could be that it's 10%. It's a bit like the algorithms of Amazon. Uh, People who bought this book bought these other books or Spotify's algorithm predicting what other music you would like. In some sense, they're a bit flat. They're not taking all this interesting complexity into account. But in many cases, they're good enough and sometimes shockingly good enough. So it might be that we're sometimes deluding ourselves that we're way more complicated than we actually are.
2: I don't think the word you're looking for is good enough. I think what this is, Chris, is this is the seductive tautology of, of, of anecdotal reasoning, right? You can always show how there's an exception to any rule. And if you use that as the basis for saying, therefore, all rules should be rejected, then there you go. All rules should be rejected. But the fact of the matter is that while humans are very, very unique and very, very subjective and very, very chaotic, at the same time, you can predict better things for them to do often, or you can predict what they're going to do next with enough frequency of correctness that you can create optimizations so that we can know, you're more likely to buy another book from me if I show you a Leonard Elmore book today than if I show you an Agatha Christie book. You're more likely to buy another pair of shoes from me today if I show you a Jimmy Choo pair of shoes than a, a Ivanka Trump pair of shoes. And and, in the same case, although hopefully in a a topic that's got much more weight and social merit, we've taken outcomes observed in long-term relationships and created models that do optimize the probability that people are going to have success as they undergo their chaotic behavior of change.
1: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna
0: move you on because we need to move on. Keep fighting, because it's nice that um, uh, you're, I'm gonna, you are, i am you are you are violently agreeing with each other. We've got music, we've got maths, we've got minds. That's where we are with this theme. And I want us to move on a little bit, to think. I want you to duel to the death. Um, uh, I, I think I want to ask the question, is it science or philosophy that holds the key to understanding love, and I've got a feeling that you're going to say it's both, which is terribly irritating. But Chris, I want to ask you why I should turn to you for advice about relationships oh, as a philosopher. No,
1: don't turn to me. i not, not the new oh, no. but, but, <laughs> hey, well, As Steve, <laughs> quite rightly says, my reasoning is entirely flawed. It's based <laughs> anecdotally. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I mean, But should no, we course, trust philosophers over no, scientists? No. W- well, philosoph- well, philosopher. Th- there was a lot in philosophy. Yes. Yes. Of course. <laughs> 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 Obviously. <laughs> you know, I mean, philosophers have been about wondering about again. the nature of love. And, of course, we've, haven't, we haven't distinguished here, um, as we should, between the idea of falling in love, the idea of eros, and then the idea of a long-term compatibility. Steve is using the word compatibility. You know, maybe there are ways that are predicting, well, how I might get on with somebody in the long term. But I may never fall in love with that person. So there were these things. Then there were questions, you know, the Greeks distinguished between that kind of love and also friendship kind of love, so these so what what philosophy is not going to do is to be able to as it, as it were to predict what, what what an outcome might be. I see the job of philosophy at least in this context as something else it 's making us more aware of the complexity of of what 's going on so that we see sh- shades of concepts and nuances of concepts with it w- within the within the thing and it seems to me that philosophy is very, very good at making some of these conceptual distinctions. Uh, it's probably not as good as it should be as just as leaving those then and asking the reader or the, or the, or the listener to say, OK, now what do you make of this? Uh, I mean, philosophers, as you've probably gathered, have a tremendous problem shutting up. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I do think that philosophy is very, very... But it's not going to direct you, it's not going to tell you, It's not going to tell you how to fall in love, but it might tell you what these things things involve in a way that I'm not sure that science can. But science will, of course Steve is right that there are predictive things about human behavior. But in a way, in, in the question of falling in love, it's precisely the unpredictable, the weird, the unusual that we're looking for.
0: So science is predictive, but love is unusual and unpredictable. Is there something inauthentic about relationships that are engineered by data, by science?
2: No, I don't think it's possible for a human being to have an inauthentic relationship unless the human being is inauthentic. Where the relationship came from is is irrelevant. If they used a, a, an online tool to meet someone or if they used the dollar saver you know, newspaper ads or if they put up a, a sheet in the pub or just walked up to a girl at the bar like I did. Um, you know, I, I think the the important distinction between philosophy and science in this context is is, as scientists, we are behaviorists. We are looking for a behavior that we can use as a label to train a model, be that in using machine learning as we do with our communication models or classical inferential statistics as we do with our compatibility models. the minute you reduce something down to a behavior, I think, from a, a, a philosophical standpoint, we would say, "Well, that single one behavior can't be love. You can't call just that one thing love." So, we're, dis- we're immediately disqualified from being in the in the fight to define what love is. We are. Tr- Choosing behaviors that we think are important antecedents to what human beings want out of a relationship.
0: But can we go back when you walked up to that girl in the bar? Yes. Did you? Were you like Neo in the Matrix and you saw her as a set of numbers and an algorithm, or was there? I mean, what, how does it work? I'll
2: tell you exactly what numbers I was looking. I was looking at how long it was going to take me to get back to the bar. Because I just bought myself a drink and then had some friend of a friend blag it off me. So I turned around, looked at the bar. It was going to take me 15 minutes to get back to the bar to get another drink. And I turned to the table next to us and said, All right, which of you wants a drink too? I'm not waiting in that line to buy one drink.
0: So, so that was a calculation. That was of a some calculation sort. of sorts. not right, right. my
2: wife.
1: But
0: not an inauthentic love in the end, right? But, but yeah. Uh, well, that's a different discussion. Can, can, I, can I just throw
1: <laughs> in something here? Because one of the things that's very interesting is the way, is a, a feature about human life is that. <clears throat> Is, is, is the way a certain kind of dissatisfaction is built into us in the sense that all of the conditions for a life can be everything we want it to be, and yet somehow we can be dissatisfied. And it seems to me that, that that's the peculiarity, you know, and we sometimes, sometimes we meet people and we think, this person, as it were, fulfills all of the criteria for being somebody I could be friendly with, but somehow it just doesn't click, and I don't know what it is. And I, I, I guess I worry about whether, in fact, Steve is just slightly underestimating that and in underestimating it we then tell ourselves something about our behavior or our thinking which then will of course have the effect of making of actually having a reductive effect because The more we tell ourselves that something can be predicted, the more it's likely to be the case that it can be predicted. Whereas if we keep telling ourselves actually there's something very peculiar and unusual here, then we might keep ourselves open to to difference. So it's it's not just a neutral idea, you know, how one responds to these things. There's a sort of feedback loop. But that's the
2: difference between philosophy and science I'm talking about. As a philosopher, you are feeling and and, and, I, and I'm glad now I didn't become a philosopher. It's like you're morally <laughs> compelled to say I have to be able to explain every single possibility. No, no, it's Whereas exactly the, the opposite, Steve. It's an example. that event becomes relegated to the error term. Can I you bring- have more? Predictive variance than I have error variance. Can I just throw in one? I'm I'm going to bring
0: in Anders as the unhappy child in a divorce (laughs) caught between science and philosophy. Because you're a a, a philosophical scientist in lots of ways and a scientific philosopher. So, do you think it's one or the other that best equips us to understand love?
3: I I typically start out by asking, what are we going to use the answer for? What kind of answers are we looking for? Uh, It's like uh, Douglas Adams, uh, when when the answer to the riddle of the universe, life universe and everything, turns out to be 42. I think it's a profoundly useful way of thinking about it, because it expresses, yeah, actually, we don't really know what the answer should be, but we know it's probably not going to be a number. Uh, so when, what is the question we're asking here? What is the best way of understanding love? And obviously that depends on what you want from it. Whether it's getting late or getting happily married or running a successful company or answering a profound question about the human condition. These answers are not the same. And an answer that's very good for one of them is probably going to be lousy for the others. So the scientific approach seems to be very good in an instrumental way for things that on average work. It doesn't work if somebody is very, very individual or very extreme. The philosophical question seems to be very useful for talking and understanding, but maybe not for getting married, unless you marry a suitable philosopher. But then of course it might be also key grounds for divorce when you finally realize that you disagree with your premises. But that's a separate thing. But
0: that's a, that's uh-huh. an interesting point in itself, isn't it? When it, if it goes wrong, not when, but if it goes wrong, is it that we do we abnegate responsibility? If we, I know Steve doesn't like this, but if we have outsourced love to an algorithm, are we less responsible for what's happened? And do we blame the data? Or so is is there is it what happens to responsibility?
3: Uh, I think adds? it's an interesting one because. We, I think we might want to outsource some responsibility, and that leads to weird effects. So a few years back, there was a bit of uproar about uh, the gay, uh, gay, uh, dating app Grinder, but they introduced a selection where you could select what race you wanted to date. Now, in reality, people are dating very selectively for particular races. Uh, this is uh, normal sociology, normal human psychology, but now it became an explicit option. You clicked into some fields in an app, and it was handled by a third party. And some people were really outraged, saying this is promoting racism. They would never say that, yeah, it's racism just to date within your race or some particular race that you, turns you on. They would never, ever have said that. But when it's an application, when there's a corporation that you can point at saying they could have de- developed this differently then it seems that you actually have part of that responsibility might be allocated there. But it also is an interesting thing because it's a kind of a social game here. We're trying to decide whether we should be allocating responsibility to the, uh, app makers or not. And I think some people might say that wouldn't it be convenient to, to abdicate all responsibility for my love on some piece of software, some algorithm saying that yeah, we used linear regression when it should have been nonlinear regression? These That's our like my are so marriage fell. Linear yeah.
0: regression. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly.
3: Uh, it's sexy, but unfortunately, it's uh, not good for my marriage. <laughs> now, but. But that seems that it's a very weird way of doing it because now you're abdicating a bit of responsibility. Even if you met your wife during a speed dating set up by a, in a the lo- local bingo club or something, it doesn't mean that the local bingo club is responsible for your marriage. You still have a responsibility. Somebody actually seriously saying, yeah, the, the bingo club should have known better. <laughs> so too, yeah.
2: And I, and I think that's a good you point. You should go to my while, bingo club, <laughs> I mean, it's marvelous. But I, I think that's a, a really, really good point, though, because while it's, it's somewhat facile to say that people are going to pass off responsibility for their decisions to a computer, they don't really do that, do they? Right? And I've never heard anyone blame their calculator for solving a math problem wrong or, or blame their car for driving into a curb. It, we tend to be responsible for the way we use technology. It's one of the good traits about human beings, the way we use technology. Um, and I, I can anecdotally tell you, I have spoken to a lot of people who've used eHarmony and both been successful, met their spouses, gotten married, or not been successful. And they don't blame the algorithms that are, that are trying to match them on long-term compatibility. They... Blame lots of other things, and sometimes there's are things about the site and the way the site. There things that they want in addition. You know, let me only you know choose to be Ivy League graduates that I'm being matched to, or let me choose people based on their income or their weight. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. people want to have more subjective control by by buttons and knobs that you try to keep them from doing because they paint themselves into a corner very very quickly and end up in a universe of one. But I've never had anyone individually come up and blame an algorithm for their relationship outcome. We're
0: having a really fascinating discussion about... Can I
1: reply to this thing about... Because I think it's fascinating. Can
0: you hold it on to the next theme? Because I'm sure it's going to be relevant. But um, I think we're having a really fascinating discussion about risk and hazard and predictability and unpredictability. Um, And I want us to move on and get our crystal balls out and our divining rods and look into the future. Um, And is this a future going to be digital? Our relationships going to be primarily digital and what will our societies look like as a result of that?
3: Well right now it looks like uh, we haven't seen nothing yet when it comes to digitalization of the world. Uh, we have been using uh, information technology in a kind of uh, the modern digital sense only since the 90s on the, in a broad scale and, we still haven't actually actually learned very much how how to use social media or how to live in social media. It might take generations, actually, before we get a really good handle on that. So I think it's pretty obvious that the future is going to be digital, but that's in the same sense like the future uh, uh, is electric, or the future actually involves uh, motors. Yeah, that's true, and it's been true for a long time. Uh, But we don't really think that we're living in the age of electricity anymore. We're thinking about the latest thing, the one that we haven't gotten hang on yet, that is uh, still giving us a fair bit of friction because we're reinventing it, we're trying to find some good uses. But deep down, I think that what we want out of love and relationship is, of course, relationship. There's a link between uh, people, and that is, by its nature, something that information has a lot uh, to do with. You might argue that maybe the pure qualia of love uh, or beyond that can never be properly expressed as information. And certainly, while I have a chapter in a book on the ethics of sex robots, I think kind of having direct personal contact is going to remain important for uh, the foreseeable future but i do think that we should expect that the marriage of the future is going to have a pretty big digital component.
0: And what about chemical because you work on the idea of chemically enhancing our relationships so will there be a magic pill to have us all happily married off ever after?
3: I doubt it's going to be the magic pill that fixes all the problems. It's rather the way of patching some problems but Pills don't contain that much information. Uh, you actually want to talk, you want to solve problems together, you want somebody who actually understands the kind of problems you have and help you and they guide you towards that. But it wouldn't surprise me that in the future, love is going to be more and more defined by culture because our culture also has the power to modify to some extent our psychology and biology directly. Whether you think that is a horror vision or a vision of paradise, that depends. A lot of people have very different views on it. But I think it's true that we're becoming more and more of cultural artifacts, which is really intriguing because it of course means that part of us is going to be in some sense politically defined, part of it digitally defined, and the choices of user interface defi- design might affect how our in the relationships work.
0: Can I get you in, Chris? Is, it, is the scenario that And is describing a horror film or a happy ever after, would you take a pill?
1: No, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't for the same reason that... Uh, so there was an American philosopher called Robert Nozick who introduced into the literature the idea, um, this was in the early 1970s, of what he called the experience machine. And he imagined that you could have this thing at home and you would go to work and so on. you'd come home and you could, as it were, plug yourself into this machine, and it might be, you know, uh, visual stimulation and the rest of it, whatever. And it would be, you know, like you were doing your favorite thing, whatever it might be. And I take it that Nozick thought that most of us would think that even if, I, if we could have a machine that would provide the, that kind of thing, that we'd have doubts about it, because we have an idea, a very, very powerful idea, of the idea of, leading a human life with all of the difficulties in it. And so that I, I so the answer to your question is I often think that there's a kind of horror story in the idea that somehow or other I could take a pill or plug myself into, you know, a machine that would make me feel fantastic. And what seems that that seems to me deeply dehumanising. But of course it's complex, you know. I mean, if I'm tired and I've got to finish a philosophical paper for tomorrow at nine o'clock, I might drink some coffee because the caffeine gives me a you know buzz and I can keep going. Do I think that's illegitimate? No. So where is the boundary? And that I think that's the difficult question of knowing as it were when to stop. And human beings are very, very bad at knowing when to stop. Can I, I just want to add one thing, because I found that absolutely fascinating, this idea, the, the thing on Grinder about you know, choosing particular races, because what one might think is, oh, it's just silly, actually, we do this in real life, so why not do it on the thing? But that seems to me, the, the question to ask is, why do people object to doing it on the app, but not in real life? And it's because of this there's a difference between I now choose I'm not going to meet, you know, women of these and these races on this thing and that screens them all out on the one hand. And on the other, I'm going about in the world and I happen to see somebody of a race and normally I don't find women of that race uh, attractive but this person is absolutely fantastic and and i haven't screened out a whole set of people from the start on the contrary i remain open to you know contingency and chance so there may actually be something in the objection that people had to that but of course we often find it very hard to articulate what those reasons are i think
0: that's a very complex question about whether this kind of algorithmic model of matching people is a form of social engineering steve
2: Well, it's absolutely social engineering. When you look at a problem in society and say, I'm going to try to create a tool which will lessen that, which was explicitly what e-harmony was, it was an attempt to reduce the rate at which people were unhappy in relationships. So that is social engineering to the extent that it's successful, and we believe it has been successful. So yes, I'd say we're proud social engineers in that to that extent. What... What Anders and Chris are talking about, in terms of giving people the ability to take an action themselves that some people might then find objectionable, and are you in some way complicit in that objectionability by providing that tool? I think that's a very separate question. But going back to your question, I think I get a turn to answer the yes. question. Of, is the future of relationship I get to be a futurist now., <laughs> um, you know, I think there's a real danger of this honestly. I think uh, you know, Anders, Anders referred to his uh, book chapter on people using sex robots. And, and frankly, there is a, a large number of companies in the world today who are in the act of, as entrepreneurs, trying to create products that are going to let you interact with a human being who's not in your presence, be that you know, vibrators or, or small devices that attach to interesting parts of your anatomy or full-blown, you know, homunculuses that you can interact with. And to the extent that those who are actually connected to another person across the internet or not, I don't think this is a good direction to go. We see lots of reasons why lack of face-to-face human contact is bad. I think everyone here, one of the reasons that being here this weekend is so uh, fulfilling and meaningful isn't the you know, brilliant things that we are saying as speakers, but the interactions we're having with each other. And I think that's the important reality of uh, of where we're going with technology, that we need to create tools that are enhancing the opportunity to have this type of interaction uh, face-to-face, and that our, our, our emphasis at eHarmony in terms of our recent UX design changes we made, actually, is to promote that idea that like we're trying to get people to interact successfully online, but to to interact quickly online and then leap offline. I
0: sort of feel like Steve was flirting with the audience there when he was saying, oh, you know, it's human interaction and this weekend has been all about that. I think we've had a completely fascinating, sprawling and complex discussion about unpredictability and social engineering. Um, And I feel like the scientists haven't lost their romance and the philosophers are rigorously data-interested too, which is an unusual place to have come to the end of our debate. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.